You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn to Revelation 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can find Revelation 14 on page 1036 in the Bibles in front of you. Last week was an interesting chapter, and I got some interesting feedback. I do appreciate the feedback. I had some asking for clarification. I had some asking for tools and recommended resources so that they can take a deeper dive into revelation and God's word. I also had kind of a a polar opposite response. I had someone tell me that that chapter last week reminded them that I am a positional preacher, meaning that I am not afraid to share my positions and I share them boldly, I share them confidently. Um, And then I had somebody else tell me that I was demonstrating pride, sinful pride in the way that I preached. And that second one I really wanted to focus on and I continue to focus on even as I'm preaching right now. I never want the heart of your shepherd to be one of pride. Certainly, there are always temptations for that. But I also want to be evaluating what I preach, how I say it, and what the goal is of preaching. And I primarily have three goals, just to remind you this morning. The first goal is to model how to study this book. How do we, in the 21st century, study this ancient text so that we can have a confidence that we have interpreted it correctly, that we understand what the original author intended for the original author. That is my first goal. The, The second goal is to show you through preaching how every book, every chapter, every paragraph, every sentence points us to Christ. And then the third goal that I have in preaching every week is to take that exercise and show relevance to your life and mind in the 21st century. And I pray that was achieved last week. I pray that it's achieved this week, and I'll constantly evaluate my delivery, my motivation to make sure that I'm standing before you as best as I know with clean hands and pure heart. Let me read Revelation 14, beginning in verse 1. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice that I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. I want you to focus in on a phrase in verse 4 that I think is the main point of these five verses. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. 
As human beings, we all follow someone or something. We follow athletes. I'm looking out on some jerseys. <laughs> we follow authors. We follow social media influencers. And what I mean by follow is that we shadow them. We, we, we stay close to them. And as we do over time, we begin to look like them. So even though there might be a Mahomes jersey here in the audience, I know that that person does not have the same haircut and for sure they cannot throw the ball like Pat Mahomes does. But the closer you come to someone that you're following, the more you tend to reflect them. Peggy March sang a song back in the 60s called I Will Follow, and the lyrics are up here on the screen. I will follow him, follow him wherever he may go. And then what I love is the phrase that says, there isn't an ocean too deep, a mountain too high that can keep, keep me away. Why? Because I love him, I love him, I love him, and where he leads all Yes, see, the first service had old people in it. Well done. We're all young in here. I'll follow, I'll follow, I'll follow. Why? Because she loves him. That is the motivation of the lyrics of this song is that I love this man so much that I will follow him no matter where he goes. No matter if it's a mountain too high, no matter if it's an ocean too deep, I'll still follow. And yet we know as we look around at life and our own experiences, most of us don't have that level of loyalty for the ones that we follow. And yet the entire book of Revelation has been a contrast between two kingdoms, two groups of citizens, and what it looks like to reveal whether you follow the God of the universe or ourselves. And so I think what verses 1 through 5 are showing us is the big idea that you can see in your notes. The lamb is worthy to be followed no matter where he leads and he gives us exactly what we need to joyously and courageously follow. So the outline this morning will show three different aspects of the lamb and then three different appropriate responses to those aspects. The, the first one is this. He is the sealer, and so we must confidently stand. He is the sealer, and we'll see that in verse 1, so we must confidently stand. Verse 1 says, then I looked, and behold. Do you see that word in the text? The word behold is used by the authors of scriptures to alert the reader to something of significance. Whenever you see the word behold, it is alerting the reader to something of significance. And in this particular case, the significance is the contrast of these five verses to what has previously followed, or what was previous. So in chapter 13, we saw the counterfeit world system that the dragon, who is the serpent or Satan, that he's put in front of us that looks like it's genuine, that causes everyone except for a small group of people to follow it. That is chapter 13. And so John is saying, behold, in contrast. It says, behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. I'll explain what Mount Zion means in just a moment, but I want you to focus in on the character of the Lamb. 
In fact, let's go back to chapter 1 of Revelation. I told you last week, I'll I'll bring you up to speed. Revelation chapter 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ. What this is setting up for the original audience and for us is that this book filled with all of these amazing scenes and all of these amazing visions and things that are difficult to understand, they're they're set up that way from Christ himself. Christ is delivering to his followers exactly what we need to do what? To conquer and endure. And how do I see that in the text, well, chapters 2 and 3. As John writes to the seven churches of Asia Minor, each one of the seven churches have the phrase, to the one who conquers. That is the end game of Revelation. Give my followers what they need, so no matter what they're facing, they will be able to conquer and endure for the glory of Christ. And what is it, beloved, that we need so that no matter whether we're in the Roman Empire, no matter whether we're under the the, the world system of Hitler or whether we're in the world system of today and everything in the future, what is it that we need as God's followers in order to be able to conquer and endure? And that answer is simple. It is Christ. That is the point of the book of Revelation. Now, again, I've been making some strong statements, but I hope that you will see that they come from the text. Jesus gives his people what we need, chapters 2 and 3, so that we can conquer and endure, and it is Christ that is what we need. And we see that in chapter 1, don't we? After the introduction, and John sets up this amazing book, he immediately starts describing Jesus in Old Testament terms to help the reader understand who Jesus is. Jesus is not some cosmic Uncle Pennybags that gives us whatever we want. Jesus is Messiah. He is the Son of Man. He is the the point of all prophecy. He is the point of all of redemptive history. We see that in chapter 1. We see that in chapters 2 and 3. We see that in chapters 4 and 5 as we see the throne room. And there's this this book that Daniel was told to seal up back in Daniel chapter 8 and in Daniel chapter 11. He has these amazing prophecies, and he's perplexed by them, and he wants God to explain them to him. And the, the angel tell him seal it up until a later date because in the end they will be opened by one who is worthy and chapters 4 and 5 tell us the one who is worthy is Christ and then we see chapter 6 and the seals and that Christ is administrating them and then we see chapter 7 and there's this massive group in heaven that is worshiping Christ and then chapters 8 and 9 we see the the trumpets that are blown and the judgment that continues to be poured out but I want you to turn over to chapter 11 because I think chapter 11 is the epicenter of revelation and the point of all of scripture and all of history I hear a lot of pages turning because that's a strong statement, isn't it? I think the point of all of Scripture, all of redemptive history, and the book of Revelation is found in verse 15 of Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, look at this, the kingdoms 
of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the point. So if you want to impress somebody, you can tell them that we're studying the book of Revelation, and the point of Revelation is the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the point. So now that we have that background, we can get back to chapter 14 and have the context for what John is doing. John is basically showing another replay of what he's been telling us for 13 chapters, slowing it down, looking at it from a different angle so that we can better understand the play of redemptive history. The play of this section of redemptive history is described in chapter 11 as 42 months, 1260 days. This is the period from Christ's death and resurrection to his second coming. Those 42 months, those 1260 days, I don't believe are intended to be literal days. It's intended to show the reader that God is controlling this perfectly. That he is putting, putting bookends on this period of time. That nothing will happen outside of his ordained plan. That all the craziness that we're experiencing in this world, all of the uncertainty of the world ahead of us in the future is ordered and orchestrated by the Lamb perfectly. And he's got this under control and he even gives us these times to remind us of that. And so then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Now, why does he say Mount Zion? Some of you that have studied the Old Testament know that Mount Zion is the mountain on which Jerusalem is situated. And so in the Old Testament, there are passages that refer to Mount Zion as the literal mountaintop in Israel where Jerusalem is found. But when we start to look at the Old Testament, we start to realize that John is not referring here to the literal geographic location of Jerusalem in Israel. Here's some passages in the Old Testament you can snap a picture of. You can study later. And then I would also encourage you to write down Hebrews 12, 22. The author of Hebrews, looking back at the Old Testament, explaining how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, says in chapter 12, verse 22, that Mount Zion represents the dwelling place of God with man. So when John is using this description and he says, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. I, I know there are some who believe this is a future event where he will literally stand on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But when you look at the Old Testament and you see the development of thought that John is providing in Revelation, I think what he's saying here is that the lamb wins. I think what he's saying here is that the kingdom will be that new Jerusalem that we long for in Revelation 21. The lamb wins. He tells us exactly what we need. I'm a huge Kansas Jayhawk basketball fan, and, and let me hasten to say I know the risk of making that statement. Some of you might think I'm a hypocrite because I graduated from Mizzou. I also know there are a lot of K-State fans here. It is what it is. I love Kansas basketball. It's because they're the best. <laughs> so the other night when my wife was preparing her Esther uh, teaching for women's ministry, I decided to redeem my time, and I watched yet again the national championship game against North Carolina. 
I watched it with joy in my heart. I watched it with peace in my soul. But that's in contrast to when I watched it live. When I watched it live, I was pacing back and forth. I may or may not have yelled at the TV. I may or may not have heard my daughter say, Mom, what's wrong with Dad? The difference is when I watched it live, I didn't know the outcome. When I watched it a couple nights ago, I knew the guaranteed outcome. Listen, the guaranteed outcome and benefit of the book of Revelation is summarized with this long statement that I'll read to you. The guarantee offered to us in Revelation is not the details of history. It's not time charts. It's not formulas. The guarantee of Revelation is the faithfulness of God to his character and that he is sovereignly ordering every event of our lives to that guaranteed end in complete consistency with his character. That's the guarantee of Revelation. And beloved, this is intended to elicit within us confidence. It's intended to motivate us to worship. It's intended to, in our lives, cause us to confidently stand. That's the next part of verse 1. It says, with him, 144,000. I'll dig more into the identity of that group as we study these five verses. But here it says... This group had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. What's the point of this description? I don't think it's a literal name tattooed on a forehead. Any more than the mark in the wrist and the forehead back in chapter 13 are literal marks. What it's doing is that John is showing who owns these individuals and where they are loyal. The the names on the forehead here show that the father and the son own these 144,000. The marks on the foreheads are images that as these people live out the patterns of their lives, others can say, oh, they belong to Christ. They belong to the father. And so our our, our responsibility, our privilege, the hopefully natural outflow of recognizing that the lamb wins is that we confidently stand. How do we confidently stand? Well, we grow in the knowledge of God's character and in so doing reflect Christ in the way we think, speak, and live. So, So here's the question before we move on to the next point. What are the patterns of your life demonstrating to others? Are they demonstrating that you belong to Christ? Is that what is your confidence no matter what context you're going through? One of the risks of coming up with lists of seasons of life and contexts of life is that the temptation might be that as you hear them, you might think, that's not me, that's not me, or pastor, you don't understand But let me ask you, as you are going through singleness, as you desire to be married, as you're going through barrenness, as you desire to have children, as you're going through difficult situations at work, as you're going through different health contexts, and it goes on and on. Whatever context the Lamb has ordained for your life, what are the patterns of your thought, speech, and behavior? Verse 2. 
what's on your forehead? You see, Christ is the one who seals us. And so we have the right and the privilege and the responsibility to confidently stand. Number two, here's the aspect of Christ on display. He is the Savior. And so we must completely sing. He is the Savior. We must completely sing. Now, as we go through chapter 14, we're going to be presented with some difficult topics. We're going to now dive into the identity of the 144,000. But before we do, I want to ask the question that so many of you ask, and rightly so. How do we know that my interpretation is correct? How do you know that your interpretation is correct? Well, it's a a long discussion, but I want to summarize it because I think it's valuable. The short answer is a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen, and that is, the short answer is that Scripture interprets Scripture in the way that the authors of Scripture and Christ himself interpret Scripture. Now, that sounds a little bit like a Sunday school answer, doesn't it? So let me give you a little bit more. I I describe them as guardrails. When, When you're driving on the highway in the Rocky Mountains, there are guardrails, thank God on the side so that we don't go off and down the cliff. Those guardrails ensure that even if we're in different lanes, we're on the right road. And and that's what I would submit to you these four tools offer us. Number one, historical context. Historical context. We evaluate the historical context of the scripture that we are studying. Number two, the grammar, the words. We study the grammar. We understand that not one word is is lost. Not one word is unimportant in Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. So we value every word of Scripture. Number three, biblical theology. The reminder that every section that we study is a part of a bigger story. So we can't interpret that section inconsistently with the rest of the story. And then number four is the full bloom aspect, meaning that in the Old Testament, the gospel is found in seedling form. In the New Testament, we see it in full bloom. When we have these four guardrails as we interpret Scripture, we can draw a confident conclusion that we're on the right highway. Now, we might find that we're in different lanes, and as long as we are in uh, a certain rank of doctrines, that's okay. But there are different ranks of doctrine. All doctrine is important, but there are first-rank doctrines that every Christian must agree with. Those are the doctrines of the Trinity, who God is and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and how they are individual persons but one God. The the Scripture, what, what is the Scripture? What authority does it have in our lives? And then when it comes to salvation, why is salvation important? What are the terms of salvation? How did Christ accomplish our salvation? Those three are the first rank doctrines and we all must agree on that. Then there's second-rank doctrines. These are important because they define how we relate to one another and how church functions and who we should partner with in ministry and in life experiences. And then there are third-ranked issues. 
Doctrinally, they are important, but they are not necessarily something to divide over. Those are things like the timing of all of this in Revelation and the details such as the beast back in chapter 13. So these are the tools of interpreting. This is a reminder how I study Scripture, and it's because I think that's how the authors of Scripture and Jesus interpreted Scripture, which brings us now to ask questions of this text. Verse 2, who is the voice? Do you see it? And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And you might remember that in chapter 1, verse 15, a similar description is found to describe the voice of Christ. So you may say, well, this is the voice of Christ. But then look at verse 2. Two. It says, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song. So the voice that John heard is not Christ from chapter 1 and verse 15. It's actually the song that is coming from the followers of Christ. But here's the nugget I want you to see when we follow this interpretive pathway. The followers of Christ will always speak the same language as Christ. Isn't that cool? The 144,000 are singing a song that sounds exactly like Christ. And so my question to you is, is your life reflecting the voice of Christ? Now it does say here that this song was a new song. We ask the question, what is the new song? Some believe it's a literal new song that will only be sung in heaven. But again, we have to look at the rest of Scripture, and I think it's this. Here's a quote. It is an expression of praise for God's victory over the enemy, and there's Old Testament Scriptures for that. When we see this phrase in the Old Testament, and remember, John is constantly using the Old Testament. John is, I think, providing the right interpretation of the Old Testament. Because at the time of John's writing, the only thing that had actually been officially recognized is the 39 books of the Old Testament. There were letters from apostles that were circulating. There were the gospels that had been written. But, but when John's writing, the only thing that had officially been recognized as scripture are the 39 books of the Old Testament. And so that's why I think John's going back to the Old Testament so much in Revelation to teach them how to interpret the Old Testament. And so I think he's using this phrase that the Old Testament uses as an expression of celebration of victory of God over his enemy. Isn't that applicable for what we study in the book of Revelation? It says in verse 3, no one can learn this song except for one group. And it says 144,000. Now, there are different opinions on what the 144,000 is the Jehovah's Witness say this is a limited number of people who will reign with Christ? Others say that this is a group of Jews because of chapter 7. In fact, would you turn back to chapter 7? We studied this months ago. I want to have you turn there just to once again exercise our biblical interpretation muscles. It says in Revelation 7 in verse 4, and I heard the number of the sealed, there's that phrase that we saw in verse 1, 
144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, if we're just reading that, it seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? These 144,000 are Jews. They are descendants of Abraham, tracing their lineage to the 12 tribes of Israel. But I think we need to move past that when we explore the rest of Scripture and actually explore what's being written here in chapter 7. The round number 12,000 in prophetic literature typically signals the reader that symbolism is being used. Also, we presented the proposal when we studied chapter 7 that the order of the tribes is different than when we see the order in the Old Testament. We also see that the tribes that are left out and the tribes that are included are different than how they are presented in the Old Testament. And then we understand the historical context that when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, that wiped out all of the genealogical records. So you take all this together, plus the fact that John has been writing symbolically in the book of Revelation, and I think we can conclude with a high level of confidence that the 144,000 in chapter 7 and then here in chapter 14 represent the entire body of believers from all time. Now chapter 14 gives us more evidence of that. Look at what it says in verse 3. They were singing this song before the throne, before the four living creatures, and before the elders. These groups occurred back in chapter 7 but not in the section that appeared to be focusing on Jews. These three groups occurred in chapter 7 in the clear description of people from all tribes, all tongues, all nations. I think this once again points us to the fact that the 144,000 are believers of all time. You know, I think it's interesting that as we look at this, we recognize that every human being should be in this group. Don't we long for that? No matter how much your worst enemy has offended you as an image bearer, as a human being, don't you long for them to be in this group? You know, it kind of reminds me of a story in Judges. Judges chapter 12, there's a judge by the name of Jephthah. He assembles his army and goes to battle against the tribe of Ephraim. And they soundly defeat them. And in fact, they soundly defeat them so badly that the soldiers of Ephraim try to disguise themselves as soldiers of Jephthah just so that they can survive. And Jephthah and his army have a difficult time determining who's part of who. And so they ask all of these soldiers to say one word. It's the word shibboleth. Now, why do they ask these soldiers to say this word? Because the tribe of Ephraim could not pronounce Shibboleth. They said Sibboleth. We don't know if it's a genetic disorder. We don't know if it's just cultural, but they could not say Shibboleth. And so when a soldier would say Sibboleth, they would be executed. They could not do what was required of them to lead them to salvation in life. In chapter 14, we see that a similar principle is in play. 
You cannot learn the song of celebration of God over his enemy unless the end of verse 3 says you have been redeemed from the earth. Do you see that in the text? I think this is another argument for why this 144,000 is not limited to Jews. It's not limited to a literal number. It's because when this phrase, redeemed from the earth, is used in the New Testament, it describes believers of all time. The way that you are redeemed is that, first of all, God chooses you. That's the text that we see here. The, the, The tense of the verb is one that occurred in a past event from someone outside of yourself that has ongoing results. So that echoes Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 when Paul says, before the foundation of the world, God predestined those who would be adopted as sons. John is affirming this. That the 144,000, the believers of all time, have been chosen before the foundation of the world. That is not ourselves. It is the gift of God. And at his perfect time and in his perfect way, he gifts us the ability to see our sin, to respond in conviction, to respond to repentance through faith, and he saves us. Glory to God. He is the Savior beloved, but then our responsibility is to sing (laughs) and to completely sing. And what does it mean to completely sing like these 144,000? Three ways, beloved, I would submit them to you and beg you to engage at a personal level. Number one, are you saved? Are you saved? Have you responded to the gift of salvation? Have you turned from your sins and asked God to forgive you? And because of what Christ has accomplished, you are trusting in that for your salvation. You have submitted to him as king and Lord of your life so that what he says you do, where he leads, you follow. Are you saved? And you might answer that question, yes, but it requires evidence that is the second way we completely sing, and that is, are you growing? Salvation, at a minimum, is a yes or no answer, but it also includes evidence of the yes. The evidence of the yes is his name written on your forehead. The evidence of the yes is where he leads, you will follow. The evidence of the yes is you're growing in your understanding of his character, and then that overflows in the way that you live, the way that you speak, the way that you you think. To completely sing means we are saved and that we are growing. But then the third one, this is really tough. Are you sharing it? Are you sharing it? No one has a light and hides it under the bushel. If the salt has lost its saltiness, what value is there? Beloved, are you sharing this glorious news that there is a Savior and his name is Jesus? Oh, friends, John reminds us here that there is a Savior, the Lamb. The Lamb who won is the Lamb who saves, and we must completely sing. Number three, he is the standard, so we must courageously shadow. I don't know about you, but when I read verse four, I wanted to skip it. 144,000 are not defiled themselves with a woman, and they're virgins. John, what are you doing here, bro? 
He's teaching us. I think if we were to look at this and take again just a literal understanding of verse 4, I think we would miss the point that John is providing. It says, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Let's look at the rest of Scripture. How does the rest of Scripture interact with men who follow God's design and have sexual relationships with only their wives? Is it negative or positive? It's positive. So, so, so why would John say that the people of God are limited to, to, to people who never have sexual relationships with their wives according to God's design? So that, that's not what John's saying here. The clue is found in the word defiled. The word defiled means to be ceremonially impure. How do you know something is impure? You compare it against the standard of purity. And that begins to, I think, unpack what John is doing here. He's saying the 144,000 are compared against Christ and his design and the patterns of their lives measure up. In fact, the word virgins is another clue. It's found 14 other times in the New Testament. 13 of those times are literally speaking of a woman who has not had sexual relationships with a man. But the one time it's used, not in this way, I think is the clue for how John is using it. You can write down 2 Corinthians 11:2, where he describes their spiritual purity through the gospel of Christ. That's the point. John's not wanting the readers to focus in on the, the physical intimacy of a man with a woman. He's wanting us to understand how that illustrates the, 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 the principle that he's putting on display here. And that is the followers of Christ will measure up against his standard of purity and the patterns of their lives because they're depending on the gospel. Another clue for that is that he uses this phrase, these, three times. So the first illustration is not defiling themselves with the women, for they are virgins. But then look at verse 4. It is these. Here's the second illustration. The followers of Christ follow Jesus no matter where he leads. And I'll show you a significant metric for that in just a moment. The third illustration is found at the end of verse 4. These have been redeemed from mankind. Again, I think this shows us this is not a limited group of 144,000. This is not a group of only Jews. These are those who have been redeemed by Christ as first fruits, as set apart from all other creation to be the people of God from Genesis to Revelation 22. And then he hammers home this idea of comparing against the standard and measuring up. Look at verse 5. In their mouth was what? What does it say? No lie. How can you tell something is true or false? You measure it against a standard. And then it says in verse 5, they are what? Blameless. How do you tell whether someone is blameless? You measure them against a standard. You know, friends, I think as Christians, one of the most stealthy and tragic temptations we have is comparison. Comparison can be used so subtly and so viciously. 
You ever had a season of your life where you are just grateful and you are content and then you see something that, someone that has something that you wish you had? What happens? All of a sudden, gratitude turns into envy, jealousy. Comparison can also be bad when we compare it against the wrong objective. Maybe you sit in a sermon and and you're convicted and you think, man, I've got to change something. And you pray about it and you even go talk to somebody on our prayer team and they pray over you. And you walk out these doors and you start to look at your neighbor. You start to look on social media and you start to think, huh, I'm not that bad. And then you move on unchanged. What a tragic exercise of comparison. But then there's another one that's subtle, and we see this in small groups that have just kicked off, don't we? You come into a small group, and you hear somebody pray, and you think, I could never pray like that. Small group leader says, give me your thoughts about the text, and you hear somebody, and you think, I could never do that. You hear an accountability time, somebody just being vulnerable and sharing how they've gained victory through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you think, I could never do that. And all of a sudden... The comparison game is accomplishing its intended purpose through the dragon and through Satan. See, I think what John is doing here is reminding us what the standard actually is. It is Christ. The standard is Christ. It's following the lamb wherever he leads, as verse 4 tells us. I told you I'd illustrate it. Go back to verse 10 of chapter 13. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. You know, we're fine with following Christ when it leads to pasture lands of health, of wealth, prosperity. But what about when it's captivity? What about when it's death? You see, even the last phrase in verse 10 of chapter 13 reminds us of the point of Revelation. Here's the call for endurance in the faith of the saints. It's not by him giving us all the details or giving us time charts or formulas. It's by putting Christ on display vividly over and over and over again. Different scenes of the same play. Slowing it down, running it fast, different angles. It's Christ. And so as you bow your heads and close your eyes, it's not enough to just have learned some interesting facts about chapter 14. The question is, have you understood it? And how are you going to apply it? Friends, I don't know what you're going through. I know what some of you are going through. I know what some of you are going through makes a passage like this sound like it's impossible to apply. I had some time spending just praying and seeking the Lord in between services. I was reminded to practice what I preach. The circumstances of our life are rarely exactly how we would desire them to be. So where is our hope? Is it in changing circumstances, different contexts, or is it in the fact that what John is saying is true, that Christ is on the throne? 
that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Lord Jesus Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Let's center our confidence on that. He is the sealer, he is the savior, and he is the standard. How are you gonna respond today? Father, I thank you for Christ. Once again, another passage that exalts him, that displays him in such vivid imagery, that I pray it compels and invites our hearts to love him more to desire him more, to reflect him more. Would you, through your Holy Spirit, plant the word deep in our hearts, water it as we sing, and may it lead to gospel fruit as we live out our lives and respond to the life you have laid out before us, all to the glory of Christ. It's in his name I pray.